Well, this is an important weekend. There are a lot of dates that are sort of colliding on us here. One is, uh, this is Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Just to tell you how messed up my life is because of social media and everything being connected, on my calendar, my Google calendar, anyone in my contacts that I put their birthday in, it shows up as their birthday on this day. So when I saw that it was Lincoln's birthday, I immediately asked, Lincoln who? I thought, I don't, I don't have that many contacts by the name of Lincoln. It's also Super Bowl uh, weekend, which might, you know, be interesting to you other than the Eagles are playing. Um, and of course, this week is Valentine's Day, very uh, well-beloved holiday that commemorates nothing. Uh, <clears throat> So I was really struggling with what do you preach on a president's birthday and Super Bowl weekend and Valentine's Day weekend. And so we're going to go to Romans chapter 3 <laughs> and talk more about the depravity of man. I tried to find a Valentine's Day sermon that was found in Romans chapter 3. I don't, I don't think there is one. So we're going to just pick up where we left off last week, which is what we do. Romans chapter 3, we'll begin with verse 19, and we're just going to read verses 19 and 20 this morning. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So this morning we're looking at the conclusion to this first major portion of the book of Romans, and it's been a difficult portion. It's been very negative, and I applaud you for sticking with it. Uh, it's been difficult to hear some of these as Paul labors the point week after week verse after verse, of how utterly undeserving we are of heaven. I sort of teased this to you last week, that here God is pronouncing His final verdict on fallen and sinful mankind. And these verses are important because they will teach us some of those foundational truths of Christianity that we need to know. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, just those first two verse, or those first couple of verses there. So in Philadelphia, there is a church, that may be surprising to many of you, there is a church, and it's called the 10th Presbyterian Church, and it's named that, however unusual that may sound to you, because it was the 10th Presbyterian Church founded in the city of Philadelphia, and it was founded in 1829. And that church has had some very memorable and famous Pastors, people like Donald Gray Barnhouse, who we'll talk about at length this morning, he pastored for 33 years from 1927 to 1960. James Montgomery Boyce, many of you have heard of him. He writes commentaries and books, very well known. He pastored for 32 years from 1968 to 2000. And then Philip Graham Ryken from 1995 to 2010 his 15-year term. And I think he may be, is he the president at Wheaton College now? Something like that. He's moved on. But Donald Barnhouse was, is 
famous for preaching and instructing preachers. Very early in his ministry, he developed a series of diagnostic questions to help him analyze how he could help those he might be counseling or that he might encounter to see where they were coming from spiritually. And so the first question he would ask, he's tried to determine if they were actually a Christian. So he would say, are you born again? And if the person couldn't answer that question convincingly, then he would proceed with a script like this one. Perhaps I can help you clarify your thinking with a question. You know that there are a great many accidents today. Suppose that you and I should go out of this building and a swerving automobile should come up on the sidewalk and kill the two of us. In the next moment, we would be what men call dead. We brush aside that absurd folly that we're going to meet St. Peter at the gate of heaven. And then parenthetically, he states, that exists only in jokes about two Irishmen. We're going to meet God, he says. Now suppose that in that moment of ultimate reckoning, God should say to you, what right, notice my emphasis on the word right, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would be your answer? And Barnhouse, as in his career, he used that question in counseling sessions, said that only a few possible answers can be given. All the variety of answers that he heard could be boiled down to just a few. One of them involves today's text. So the first answer some people might give is a common one. And that is that they have done certain good things in their life and they want to be accepted by God on the basis of those achievements. You've probably run into people like that. Some people we know, have a very high opinion of themselves and they think they've been models of righteous conduct. They believe they've done a great deal of good. Others know that they've not been consistently good, but they still want God to take note of the good things they have done and accept them into heaven on that basis. I mean, they may say, hey, I've tried to keep the golden rule. I've been helpful to my neighbors, and so on. And if someone were to answer Barnhouse in that way, I'm sure he would take them to the book of Galatians, where the last part of verse 16 of chapter 2 says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. See, no one can satisfy God's perfect standards by our tainted human righteousness. And you must clearly understand this. No one is going to be justified before the bar of God's judgment on the basis of his or her good works, however great they may be. Your record will not save you. It's your record that has gotten you into trouble in the first place. Your record will condemn you. The only way anyone will ever be saved is by faith in Jesus Christ. This Jesus who paid the penalty for all of our sins, 
and in the place of those sins, offers us the gift of his own great righteousness. The second answer that can be given to Barnhouse's questions is from our text today. In verse 19, it says, So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see, mankind won't have a thing to say. At God's judgment, no one will be able to offer up any good works for grounds for his or her justification. Or will they be able to offer any proper, valid excuses for their bad conduct? All mouths will be mute. And everyone will know that he or she is guilty and deserves God's condemnation. The reason, of course, is that it is God's judgment. The person we'll be standing before is God. You see, we don't have the same experiences when we appear before men or have an earthly trial. Here we have trial by our peers. But our peers are like us. That's sort of the definition of a peer, isn't it? They're sinful. And so frequently, juries excuse bad behavior. Not even judges always act uprightly in their decisions. In some cases, they can be influenced or even bribed, or they may just make mistakes. We're people. Not to mention our human law is imperfect. There are loopholes in our law. We can plead extenuating circumstances. And even if we lose our case, we can generally appeal to a higher court. And if we finally exhaust our legal options and maybe we're sent to prison, we can still carry out efforts of self-vindication. We can write letters. We could even write a book. We can argue. We can refuse to be silenced. But before, every God, before God, every mouth will be silenced. Then we'll know that we're not righteous. There is no word that can be spoken in our defense. Now we see evidence of this silence before God in Scripture. These examples are those of the saints. If anyone could stand before God and be able to speak in his or her own defense, it would be these upright characters of the Bible. But that's not what we find these people doing. Whenever these heroes of the Bible get a glimpse of God's glory, the result is not a loosing of the tongue, but it's a feeling of utter worthlessness before God and of silence. First, we can consider Job. Job wanted answers to a very important question. The question was, why do the righteous suffer? His friends had no answers for him, although they talked a lot. And when God finally spoke, revealing himself to Job and asking a series of questions that seemed to go on and on, you can read these in Job chapters 38 through 41. Job was overcome with confusion, it seems, and he says this in Job chapter 40, beginning in verse 4. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? 
I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job was silenced. Then there was Isaiah. He had the same experience in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. We see that God revealed himself to Isaiah, and Isaiah said this in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah's response here was focused on his lips and the lips of his people. He recognized that anything he might say was unworthy and unclean and sinful. He was silenced. He said no more. And it was only after God sent a seraph to him with a coal from the altar to place on his lips that he was freed to speak again and obey God's command to take his message to his people. When Habakkuk had a revelation of God, he said this in chapter 3, verse 16 of the book that bears his name, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. His lips trembled, but no sound came out. So every mouth will be stopped is what Paul says. No excuses. Barnhouse, interestingly, when he commented on this passage here in Romans 3, he thinks it's even beyond that. He says it won't be excuses that people offer if they're able to speak at all. But should there be any speech at the judgment seat of God, he says that it will be a resentful acknowledgement of the truth of God and the justice of their own condemnation. Here's a quote. He says, they would say something like, it was all true, God. I was wrong. I knew I was wrong when I made my excuses. But I hated and still hate the principle of righteousness by the blood of Christ. I must admit that those despised Christians were right who bowed before you and acknowledged their dependence on you. I hated their songs of faith then, and I hate them now. They were right, and I hated them because they were right and because they belonged to you. I wanted my own way. I still want my own way. I want heaven, but I want heaven without you. That is what I want. And I do not want anything else and never, never will want anything other than heaven with myself on the throne. I want my own way. And now I am going to the place of desire without fulfillment, of lust without satisfaction, of wanting without having, of wishing but never getting, of looking but never seeing. And I hate, I hate, I hate because I want my own way. I hate you for not letting me have my way. I hate, I hate. Their voices will drift off into nothingness and there will be silence at last. So Donald Barnhouse just is imagining here the unrepentant nature of those who will stand before the throne of God. 
There will be no excuse. So it's clear from what I've been saying that the only saving answer, the third answer to the question being posed, what right do you have to come into my heaven, will not focus on the works of the sinner, but on the achievements of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be saved, it, will be on the base, it won't be on the basis of anything we've done, but only on the basis of what Christ has done for us. We'll get to that answer in just a moment. You see, Christ died for us, and he suffered in our place, and he bore the punishment for our sins. All who come to God on that basis will be saved. None others will. Only those who come to God trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ will enter heaven. Do you guys know what the Arthur Murray Dance Studios are? Anyone? <laughs> okay. That's not surprising. It is uh, basically a ballroom dancing class, uh, institute, uh, studio, where you can learn to ballroom dance. So I figured that no one under the age of 60 would know what it was. But it's very famous. There still may be some around. I'm sure there are. Many years ago, there was an Arthur Murray dance instructor who'd been out late on a Saturday night. In the early hours of the morning, he staggered back to his hotel room and fell into his bed and fell asleep. The next morning, he was jolted awake by his clock radio. And a man was speaking and was asking this question, if in the next few moments some great disaster should happen and you should be killed, and if you should find yourself before God and he should ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven, what would you say? The dance instructor was amazed and somewhat confounded by the question. He'd never heard a question like that before, and he realized he did not have an answer. He didn't have a single thing to say. His mouth filled with empty words just hours before that on Saturday night now had nothing. He sat silently on the edge of his bed while Donald Barnhouse, the voice on the radio, explained the answer to him. That dance instructor was D. James Kennedy, who served as the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, from 1960 until his death in 2007. Now, I thought my background was kind of odd to end up being a, a pastor, but a dance instructor, that's unique. And you knew he wouldn't be the pastor of a Baptist church, didn't you? Uh, <laughs> being a dance instructor. But Dr. Kennedy was also the author of the popular witnessing and evangelism program known as Evangelism Explosion. Kennedy believed on Jesus Christ that day in his hotel room, and that question that led him to that point became the chief tool in his evangelism strategy. Since that day, many thousands of people have come to Christ through his program and through being confronted with that question. So to close this section of the message, I want to ask you really the same question I asked you last week. What will your answer to, be, to God be? When God says, what right do you have to come into my heaven, what will you say? 
Will you say, well, here's my record. I know I've done some bad things, but I've done an awful lot of good things too. I want you to look at these and see if they're not enough for me to be allowed in. Add it up. All I want, God, is justice. Lots of people worse than me. And if you say that, justice is exactly what you're going to get. You'll be judged by your sin and you'll be condemned. Your good works, however fine they may seem in your sight, or even to other people, will not save you. I mean, we've read in here just a few weeks ago, chapter 3, verse 10 of Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Maybe you won't plead your good works. Maybe you'll stand before God silent. I mean, you may think that's better. At least you've recognized that your good works are not adequate to plead before Almighty God. But still... What a pitiful position to be in, to be silent before the one judge of the universe, not able to make a defense, no possibility of any extenuating circumstances, no hope of escaping condemnation. So what will you say? Well, the only right answer to the question posed by Donald Barnhouse is the third one. And I hope you've come to this realization through these messages the past few weeks, but my right to heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for me. He took the punishment for my sin, and he is my right to heaven because he has become my righteousness. That's the only answer. You've got to be able to say that. Let's look at the closing verse this morning. Verse 20. It says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The English Standard Version that we're reading from this morning begins with the word for. The New International Version and the King James Version, if you're reading those this morning, it begins with the word therefore, and the New American Standard Bible begins with because. So the Greek word here in this sentence, it's the only time, it's the first time actually that it's been used in the book of Romans. You might have seen the word for or therefore or because previously in your English translation but this Greek word dioti, it's, this is the first time it's been used. The short definition of the word is because. But the, the longer definition, the one that is more descriptive says, on account of which thing? On account of everything I've said up until this point, here's the conclusion, is what Paul is saying. Paul began this argument way back in chapter 1, verse 18 where he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That was the beginning of this monologue about the state of fallen mankind. And he 
concludes it in that previous verse about every mouth being stopped before the judgment seat of God in verse 19. So he's been proving that the entire race lies under just condemnation because of its wickedness. And his argument has been an all-embracing negative. It has been terribly negative. People have wondered if I'm okay because all I do is preach negative things. But this negative precedes the even greater positive statements that we're going to begin next week. So how does Paul choose to summarize his argument? He simply states that no one will be saved by their good works. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. I guess the question is, why not? Why isn't that good enough? Why can't men be saved by good works? Well, I want to give you an illustration. This illustration is from a book by Robert Horn of British InterVarsity, and the book is called Go Free, The Meaning of Justification. Turns out, however, that he borrowed the illustration from Dr. Lorraine Bettner in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. But <clears throat> Dr. Bettner borrowed it from W.D. Smith in his book called What is Calvinism? So I just want you to see how hard it is to give proper attribution for illustrations that you steal from other people. So we go back three books deep to get to who actually came up with this, and he may have borrowed it from someone else as well and just didn't write it down. So we're talking about why good works can't save you. Imagine, if you will, a sailing ship manned by a crew of pirates. I mean, the pirates are on good terms with one another. They work hard at their jobs. They're honest among themselves, according to sort of a pirate code of honesty, I guess. They help one another. They defend one another. And their hard work really is hard work. And their kindness to each other really is kindness. But all of these good actions, and you should probably put good in quotes there, all of these good actions are also and at the same time bad or wrong because they are aimed at maintaining themselves in violation of international maritime law. That's what pirates do. Their good deeds are highly selective. They don't help everyone, only themselves or people like themselves. They actually rob and maim and murder many other people. And even their kindness to each other grows out of this common rebellion that they have, expressing, actually reinforcing that rebellion, if it will, makes their group stronger in rebellion against the law. And this perfectly describes mankind. Yes, man does some things that, to him at least, appear to be good. Genuinely good, but man has suppressed the truth about God. Man has rebelled against God. His mind has been darkened. He has become the fool. Paul says no one seeks after God and no one does good. Mankind is like those pirates. Even the good things we do are done in our rebellion against God. To give you a more modern day example, the same thing could be said about the mafia. If any of you have read Mario Puzo's book, The Godfather, or watched the movie, the one thing that strikes you, in addition to the violence of it, 
is that some of these mafia dons were real family men. They loved their wives and their children. They were loyal to each other and they defended each other. Oh, but they were still crime-oriented, weren't they? And the structure and ethical code of the family was created only to advance and enhance their own well-being in violation of the law. So this parallels our situation in respect to mankind's rebellion against God. We may do good things, at least they seem good to us, but our good is actually bad because it is designed to maintain our rebellion against the only sovereign God and His laws. So you could say that the first reason our good deeds cannot save us is that they really aren't good. The second reason is obvious, and that is that no one actually observes God's law. We just read that. But maybe you remember these next two verses and the contradiction that they seem to offer. Let's look at these. They're both from Romans, obviously. The first one is in chapter 2, verse 13. It says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So the doers of the law will be justified. Well, then we get to verse 20 of chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So do these verses create a problem? Well, no, they don't. Both are true because although anyone who perfectly obeys the law would be justified, they would be declared righteous. The righteousness of God requires it. In point of fact, no one actually does this. Rather, all disobey God's law. So reason number one is that we don't actually pursue God. We say we are, but we're actually running from Him in rebellion, and so our good works aren't actually good. The second reason is that no one actually observes God's law. The third reason is even more blunt. Far from observing the law or even trying to, we're actually violating the law in every conceivable way, on every conceivable occasion. And so Scripture describes fallen mankind as thoroughly and actively, consistently, and intentionally wicked. I mean, this is the point of those two long lists that we read. I think we even read them last week. And I'm just going to read them to you one more time. We're not going to study through them, but just so you hear them. These are how Paul, two lists that describe how Paul sees mankind. Romans 1, 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That doesn't really sound like, you know, they're okay, but they just messed up every now and then. Doesn't sound like that at all. And in chapter 3, starting in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. 
The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So man is constantly and intentionally violating the laws of God. There's a fourth reason why no one will be declared righteous before God by observing the law. The fourth reason is that God is concerned with true or actual observance of His law, not merely outward things that mean nothing apart from inward reality. God is concerned with the attitudes and actions of the heart, not just with things that appear to be pious. The chief example we've looked at here in Romans was that of circumcision. You remember when we looked at that many weeks ago? Circumcision of the Jewish people. You see, this was not a pagan superstition. Circumcision was a rite prescribed for Israel by God in the Old Testament. It was originally given to Abraham. It was to be a mark of membership in the special family of chosen people, chosen by God. It's neither extra-biblical nor unimportant. It was an important rite, just as today things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and church membership and similar practices are important. But the error of thinking is that believing that a person can be declared righteous, righteous before God by such things, that is not possible. Sacraments like these have value once a person is justified because they are valuable signs of what has already occurred in a person's life. And they serve to remind those people of that experience and to strengthen them. But no one can be saved by circumcision or any other external religious acts. God is not taken in by externals. There is no substitute for faith. One last thing. If no one can be saved by the law, then what is the purpose of having the law? Well, verse 20 speaks to this. It says again, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So when we looked at the first half of that sentence, the negative half, it said no one will be justified by works of the law. And we've looked back over verses we've covered previously in Romans to see why that statement is true. But that's only part of the sentence. The first half tells us what the law cannot do, and by contrast, the second half of the sentence contains a great positive statement because it's going to tell us that even though the law can't save anybody, it does have a very valuable purpose. It is able to show us where we fall short of God's standards and thus point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the only means by which God offers salvation. My favorite illustration of the law and what it can do is that of a mirror. This is not original to me, and I don't even remember when I first heard it. Maybe in college. 
or my youth group. I don't remember. So what happens when you look in the mirror? Well, like me, you weep silently and you die a little inside. But for most people, what happens when you look in the mirror is you see yourself, don't you? And what happens if your face is dirty when you look in the mirror? The answer is you realize that you need to clean your face. Does the mirror clean your face? Well, of course not. That's not what it's designed to do. So it would be silly to walk away from the mirror with a dirty face and say that the mirror is not valuable. The mirror is designed to drive you to the soap and the water whereby you can cleanse your face. So this morning, I guess my question again is, where will you find your cleansing? The law points out to us just how far we've fallen short of what God expects and demands. We're in need of cleansing. Where will you find it? You'll only find it in Christ to whom the law drives you. I want to share with you the story of a man's life. His name is William Cooper. He was an 18th century poet and pretty famous in England. Cooper's mother died when he was six, and his father sent him to a boarding school where he studied and was later apprenticed to a lawyer with the intention of having a career in the law, practicing law, but he really never applied himself to it, and he had no heart for the public life of a lawyer or of a politician. At 21, he sank into his first paralyzing depression, the first of four major battles with severe mental breakdowns. And you'll have to forgive me if I don't use the proper culturally accepted terms this morning for things like depression and mental breakdowns. I'm not up on what's correct and what's not. You see, struggle with despair came to be the theme of his life. He was 21 years old, not yet a believer. And when you read the story of William Cooper's life, you find that it seems to be one long accumulation of pain beginning with the death of his mother when he was six. When he was 28 years old, he had a total mental breakdown, tried three different ways to commit suicide, and was put into an asylum. On December, I don't remember the day, in December of 1763, he was committed to St. Albans, insane asylum where Dr. Nathaniel Cotton tended to the patients. Now, Cotton was a bit of a poet himself, but even more importantly, he was an evangelical Christian, a lover of God and a lover of the gospel. He shared with William Cooper while he was there in St. Albans, and there he became a believer. But his melancholy and his depression would continue. There were even more attempted suicides, but again, God providentially prevented them from being successful. Cooper's life was very dark, 
with despair. And as you read it, there are many lessons we can draw from it as we analyze his life. But today, I just want to point out that in the midst of his great despair, he knew where his salvation was. He found cleansing in that place where his salvation was to be found. And he wrote in 1772, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. I'm going to ask our musicians to return to the stage as I close this morning. I hope you have found cleansing where William Cooper, a thoroughly broken person, and so many others have found it. Peter writes in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Where will you find?